0: And uh, if you are just new here or visiting here this morning, we're just happy you're here. Don't feel any compulsion to give. We're just happy to see you. And uh, as our usher comes forward now, we are going to uh, pray for the offering. Heavenly Father, thank you that you can satisfy our every desire and need. Your word says that we should give honor to you with the first fruits of our wealth. Accept our tithes and offerings as a, a gift of worship to you. Multiply what we give for the effective growth of your kingdom. May Christ dwell in our hearts through the faith so that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. May we be filled with the fullness of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That's better. All right. Sorry about that. Um, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we kind of dropped the ball a little bit. And Pastor Duncan isn't here this morning, obviously. He's at the thing with the other guys. And I just, I I feel bad that we haven't mentioned anything. Um, So, you know, we still have about 13 hours left in October. So (laughs) we made the deadline. But... um, We just want to, this morning, just, you know, appreciate Pastor Duncan for all the work that he does here. It's not easy what he does. When I was a kid, I thought, being a pastor, that looked so enticing. Because I thought, well, they only work one day a week and one hour at that. (laughs) And then I realized that it's a hard job. And it's 50, 60 hours. It's it's 24-7 because people can call day or night and, and need the pastor. So... We definitely really appreciate Pastor Duncan, and um, we're happy that he's here at North Shore Church. And if you get a chance, uh, you know, just say something or send him a card or, or for sure pray for him because he's against a lot of spiritual attacks. As anybody who's in any kind of ministry knows, it's, uh, it, Satan hates that we're meeting here right now today. And um, so it, it's important that we appreciate our pastor and let him know that... that um, that, you know, he is appreciated and he's doing a great job. So let's try to remember to do that when we see him. Um, Today's reading, um, Andrew, Pastor Duncan's son, is going to be preaching from 1 Peter 1 today. And uh, this is the reading from starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, So that the tested tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, it's perhaps been a a long week, maybe even a stressful week this week, and Lord, even even the car ride into church this morning, Lord, I don't know what that looked like for folks, but... Lord, you do, and uh, we just pray for the folks that are struggling with anything that you would just be here with us, Lord. We ask that you would direct our hearts and our minds toward you this morning. Fill each of us with your spirit. Bring refreshing and renewal, peace and joy. You remind us in your word that you are faithful to carry out our our burdens. Mm -hmm. You tell us that you will renew our strength, and you promise to give us rest as we come to you, Lord. Forgive us for times we have worked so hard to be self-sufficient, forgetting our need for you, living independently of your spirit. Forgive us for letting fear and worry control our minds and for allowing pride and selfishness to wreak havoc over our lives. Mm -hmm. Forgive us, Lord, today for not following your ways and for living distant from you. Thank you that your ways are far greater than our ways and that your strength is deeper than our, than our strength and your thoughts deeper than our thoughts. Thank you that you have a plan to redeem us. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that you make all things new. You are close to the brokenhearted. You hear our prayers and you know our hearts, Lord. We pray for our service today that it would be worshipful and glorifying to you. Remove any distractions from us that, that we may... Hear your word in its pierced form. We pray for Andrew this morning as he brings us your message that his words may be your words, Father. We pray for the healing, the hurting and the sick in our church family. For Jeff's mom, Mary, we pray for her recovery. We pray for John Hickson for a better lung capacity, Lord, in this rough season of his life. We pray for Michelle Ross as she still continues to uh, recover from hip surgery, God, that you give her peace and patience when when times are the the hardest for her. We pray for the entire men's retreat this morning, Lord, um, that uh, they may have had many God moments and that they have uh, safe travels back, Father. We pray for Warren and and Donna as they get ready to move, that you would be with them, Lord, every step of of their journey, Lord. Um, We pray for Marsha and Butch this morning, um, that you just help them to continue recovering from their illness, We pray for Anna Ross. Um, God, we, just, we pray for some good news to come out of that, Lord, with her diagnosis, and that it wouldn't be MS. And that if it would even, Lord, that you would just be with her, Lord, and, and continue to um, help her to just fight and to know that, that she is very loved by you, Father. We pray for Rob Lobbs as he fights cancer. Lord, we know that you are bigger than cancer. We know that you're bigger than anything, any of our diseases or, or problems that we have, Lord. You are, you are bigger than all of that. Allow us to allow the, the chemo treatments to, to work um, for him, Lord. Um, Lord, we pray for all the folks right now that are in our hearts and minds, and we're just going to be quiet a minute, Lord, to just be able to those people that are in our minds and on our hearts, Lord, that we would just come to you with those, those people right now, whether in, in our hearts or whether out loud. We just pray for those people right now. come to worship you this morning, Lord. We pray that your presence be made much of and that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is lifted up high. In your holy name we pray, amen. Good
1: morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Andrew Ross, and as I said, I'm a pastor in Duluth, Minnesota, and I have the great blessing there to teach God's word mainly to youth at our church. And I have the also great privilege to know your pastor and his wife as mom and dad. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for them, and I am thankful to be here to worship with you this morning. Uh, when talking about North Shore Church with my dad, he always says two things. He says they love God, and they love God's word, and they're hungry for it. So I'm humbled to bring God's word to you this morning. And so would you pray with me one more time and ask for God's help as we dive into his word? God, no one here needs to hear from me. We desperately need your word we need to hear from you. So would your word go forth? Would you help Christ to stand forth from his word? Your word is fixed and living. We ask that you would draw us closer to yourself. Would the lost be saved? Would the wounded be bound up? And would you encourage us, strengthen us, prepare us for what lies ahead, for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the marks of every genuine Christian is hope. Christians are people who have been given real, vibrant hope. Now, the word hope is often used to describe things we want to happen. We say things like, I hope the weather is nice tomorrow. I hope I get a good grade on my test. I hope to get that job. I hope to see my kids be married someday. Those kind of hopes are really just wishful desires. Maybe this will happen, maybe it won't, but I really want it to happen. That kind of hope is not the kind of hope we see here in First Peter. The hope we read about in this passage that Scott just read is secure and solid. It's life-giving and it's joy-producing hope. And one of the greatest things about the kind of hope we see in the pages of Scripture is that it isn't something we produce. There is no five-step plan for hope or three things you can do to create more hope in your life. Peter tells us of a hope that Christ has won for us. Christ has won for us this hope. This passage is not meant to get you charged up with shallow feelings of hope that are here one moment and they're gone the next. This passage shows us the hope every believer has been given in Christ. If you're a believer, you've been given this hope. So if you want a roadmap for where we're going this morning, we're going to see three aspects of this hope that Christ has won for us. So here's my summary slash outline. Christ has won for us a living hope, sustaining hope, and an enduring hope. Christ has won for us a living hope, a sustaining hope, and an enduring hope. By God's grace, we will see that in this passage. So, starting in verse 3, Peter begins by praising God. He says, Look at verse, uh, one, uh, verse 3, 1 Peter 1 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to believers who he refers to as elect exiles earlier in verse 1. These are people who are being treated as exiles, as strangers in their cities, in their communities, because they love and follow Christ. They are suffering for Christ, and they're suffering, the suffering they're experiencing are things like slander, and being maligned, and being insulted for the name of Christ. I'll give you a few examples we see of that. 1 Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So they're being slandered for their god-honoring behavior. Or 1 Peter 4:4 4, 4 says with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So they're maligned and antagonized and insulted for not joining in the sinful behavior of the world around them. That's the situation these believers are in. They're elect exiles as Peter writes to them. Maybe you can relate to these Believers being slandered, maligned, insulted for unapologetically following Christ. And Peter, writing to these people, people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins praising God to kick off this letter. After his introduction, verse 3, he's praising God. And you might think that's kind of a weird way to start a letter to people who are suffering. You want to say, where's the sympathy, Peter? Where's the compassion? Not Wouldn't you start off with, like, I'm so sorry for the suffering you're going through? But Peter's not being tone-deaf here. This isn't putting a silver lining on a big cloud saying, guys, let's focus on the good stuff and maybe we'll just forget about the bad. No, he knows they're hurting. And what he's saying to them by starting this way is saying, our God is so great and I'm praising him and you exiles will join in too when you're reminded of what god has done for us that's what he's doing he's inviting them to join him and he's going to remind them of the great hope they have in god i pray that's true for us today that our hearts response to seeing what god has done for us is praise even in the midst of your suffering whether it's being slandered for christ or sickness or marital strife or a thousand other trials you may be going through i pray we have in God a hope that we see here that causes us to praise him in the midst of your trials. So look at the great news we have here at the end of verse three. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again you know our God is a God of great mercy. He's a God of great mercy. If you want to see a picture of what mercy looks like, you can go to Luke chapter 10, often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable goes a man was traveling, and during his trip he was attacked by robbers. He was beaten and left for dead on the road, and a priest sees the man dying there, and he walks by. Doesn't help him. Then later a Levite sees the wounded man dying, bleeding, And he walks right on by. But then a Samaritan comes along and he sees the man lying there and he's filled with compassion and he cares for him and he washes his wounds and he puts him on his donkey and he finds a place for him to stay and he pays for all his expenses. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asks in Luke 10, 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. That's mercy. Mercy sees the helpless, the needy, the hopeless, and runs to them with compassion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the great mercy you and I have received from God. God looked upon you and upon me, dead in sin, without hope in this world, headed for sure destruction, and in his great mercy, out of no obligation, he saved us. When God describes himself in Exodus 34, one of the first things he says about himself is that he's a God of mercy. Look at Exodus 34:6. God is describing himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We have a God of great mercy. And according to his great mercy, look at what it says, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All who have received this great mercy of God are born again. They are saved. They are a new creation. And it says we're born again to something. We're born again to a living hope. We're born again and given a hope that is living It's a hope in a future that is so secure that we live in light of that hope now. It's a living hope. And it says here that this living hope is secured through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus died and rose again, and because of his resurrection, our sins are forgiven and our faith is not in vain. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Jesus' resurrection ensures that we will be delivered from the wrath to come, all who are trusting in Christ. And through Jesus' resurrection, all who trust in Christ will also be raised with him. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing, I'm so glad he says, knowing, this is sure, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The resurrection secures for us a living hope. Now, I don't think that we live in a world where most people feel hopeless. I don't think most people feel hopeless hopeless. Even with all the pain and suffering and hardships in this world because of sin, people are still pretty good at finding something to strive for, something to look forward to, something to hope in. In fact, I think when that goes away, people commit suicide when they have no hope. And there are lots of things that people are hoping in, but there's a massive difference between our hope in Christ and the world's hope. The difference is our hope is living. Jesus is alive Every hope that is not secured through Christ's resurrection is a dead hope. Every hope that is not secured through Christ's resurrection is a dead hope. The things of this world that are fading away, money, success, possessions, health, reputation, influence, earthly power, physical beauty, intelligence, they're all bankrupt. They're dead hopes. None of those things give you hope. When your child is in the hospital on life support. Or when the one thing you were living for and working for is taken away in an instant. Or when you're on your deathbed. And none of those things can give you hope in eternity. You know that hell is truly a hopeless place. The world needs the living hope we have in Christ, a hope that shines even when a believer takes their last breath, a hope that shines in the hospital room, it shines in the darkness, and it shines through suffering. We have a living hope, but we also have a sustaining hope. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. He says that we are born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope and a future inheritance. In the Old Testament there's a lot written about the people of Israel receiving an inheritance. Their inheritance was the promised land. They were sojourners and aliens traveling to their land, their new home, the inheritance that God promised them. It was theirs by God's promise. Even during the days of Moses and before, when they didn't have it yet, it was there by theirs by God's promise. And likewise, we who are adopted in Christ are awaiting our future inheritance. We're looking forward, traveling as exiles in the world, looking to our inheritance. It's ours in Christ now, even though we don't fully have it yet. But unlike the Promised Land, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. When describing our future inheritance, you notice Peter doesn't focus on the substance of it. He focuses on the qualities of our inheritance. He says our inheritance is imperishable. It will never perish. It will never pass away. It can't be taken. It can't be destroyed. It's undefiled, he says. The promised land was often described in the Old Testament as being defiled by the people's sin. One example would be Jeremiah 2.7. It says, and I brought you, this is God speaking to the people, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, and made my heritage an abomination. Oh, how good it is that our future inheritance won't be defiled by our sin or the sin of others. How easily today are God's gifts marred by sin. We take God's gifts with pride in ourselves, jealousy and envy for what others have been given, but not our future inheritance. It's undefiled, and it's unfading. Its beauty and glory will never be diminished. All the things of earth diminish. You ever get tired of having to maintain everything? Romans 8 says that the creation was subjected to futility. Part of that futility is the continual decay of the things of this world. You buy something new, and as soon as you start to use it, it starts to decay. It needs maintenance. It starts wearing out. It gets dull. It gets scratched. You get that new iPhone. It looks so good. And your screen cracks, it gets scratched, you gotta put a case around it, whatever it may be, or if you use the inferior Android devices, whatever you prefer. Either way. But they all fade. <laughs> They're all fading. First Peter five four says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our future inheritance is unfading. God has an amazing inheritance awaiting his children, but verse five makes that news better because not only is this great inheritance being kept for us, he also says that we're being kept for it. Look at this, at the end of verse four, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you're in Christ, God is not only keeping your inheritance, he's keeping you. He's keeping you. It says God is guarding you by his power and he does that through your faith. Faith is the means God uses to guard us. The reason your faith in Christ does not utter, utterly fail today is because God's power is supplying and sustaining your faith. We have sustaining hope. If my power was supplying and sustaining my faith, or you yours, we wouldn't have any faith. We wouldn't have any faith. We have sustaining hope because God's power guards us. I'm not going to lose my inheritance, and neither are you, Christian, because God's power will sustain your faith to the end. This hope we have in God sustaining our faith is something we get to see powerfully on display in Peter's life. We get a front row seat to this happening to Peter. This is happening to believers all the time. You, me, when Peter was alive, this was happening. But we get this kind of behind-the-scenes look at this in Peter's life. Before Jesus went to the cross, and before Peter denied him three times, in Luke 22, Jesus says this to Peter. Look at this in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But... I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prays that his faith won't fail. And everything Jesus prays for, he gets because he always prays in the Father's will. Satan demands to have Peter in this verse. He demands to have Peter so that he can take Peter's faith. And Jesus prays that God the Father would keep Peter's faith from failing. Now, if you know the rest of what happened, you know what what Peter did after Jesus prayed this. Peter ran away. And he denied Jesus three times. But in all of that sin, God sustained his faith. He didn't lose all faith and reject Jesus forever, did he? I don't know about you, but that gives me endless hope because I'm just as sinful as Peter. I see myself in Peter's sin. Your sin is not more powerful than the sustaining grace of God. Your sin is not more powerful than the sustaining grace of God. Believer in Christ, do you fail? You sinned this week? I know I did. You ever feel... Th- so far from where you should be? You ever look at all the areas of your life at home and at work and at school and at church with family, with friends, and in all of them, you just say, I'm so selfish and I'm so prideful and I see my heart. The more I see of my heart, the more sin I see, and I keep blowing it and I feel a million miles away from godliness. What hope does somebody like that have that we're going to have faith this afternoon? Brothers and sisters, God is guarding you. God is guarding you. Our hope is not in ourselves. Don't put your faith in your ability to have faith. Don't put your faith in some ability you think you have to have faith. Our faith and our hope are in our merciful God. Look at 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that purpose so that your faith and hope are in God our faith and our hope are in God God is guarding you in the midst of all our sin he's holding us fast when our faith fails God keeps your faith from failing completely if you're in Christ so are you discouraged you feel beaten down by your sin I want you to hear God's gentle, sustaining care for you. Look at Isaiah 42.3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will guard your weak, barely burning wick of faith. He will guard it. As one great worship song says, it's a song called He Will Hold Me Fast. Maybe you sing it here. Listen to these lyrics. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He holds us fast. We have a sustaining hope in a God who holds us fast. So we have a living hope, a sustaining hope, and last we see an enduring hope, a hope that endures through trials. Look at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says at the beginning of verse 6, In this you rejoice. What is this that they're rejoicing in? In this you rejoice. What is the this that they're rejoicing in? It's everything that came before. The great mercy of God being born again. Our living hope, our future inheritance are being guarded. In that they rejoice even though they've been grieved by various trials. They are rejoicing and grieving at the same time. Joy and grief joy and grief are not mutually exclusive realities for the believer it's hard to explain this reality because for the world it seems so much like a a paradox how can you have grief and joy at the same time together one of the images that's helpful for me maybe this will be helpful for you to think about how these two realities exist in the believer is thinking about a funeral for a loved one someone you love that is a believer Think about being at a funeral for a loved one who you know is a believer. When you are at that funeral, there is deep grief and deep pain because you lost your loved one. But if you know that believers with the Lord, in that pain there's joy because the believer can say in that moment, I'm so glad. As much as I miss them and I wish they were still here with me, I would have it be no other way than for my loved one to be with Jesus right now. There's great joy, and there's great pain and grief. Grief and rejoicing. The life of every believer in this world is grief and joy together until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, there's only endless joy for the believer. But thank God that our grief and our trials are not meaningless. They're not meaningless. Notice in verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That if necessary is so important. Every sorrow, every trial in your life is one that God has deemed necessary for you. It's one that God has deemed necessary for you. God doesn't put any meaningless trials in your life. He doesn't put any meaningless trials in your life. They're all purposeful. Peter says the same idea later in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters, none of your tears will be wasted. No pain will be pointless. God is doing 10,000 things for your good and his glory in your trials, whatever they may be. And I don't know what all the reasons are. I don't know every reason, everything that God is doing in our trials, but we do know some. We do know some of the reasons. Peter tells us some of the purposes for our suffering. Look again at verse 7. So that, so here's the purpose, you're suffering, you're being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. In this verse, we're given at least three reasons for the trials God puts in our lives. Three reasons for why God does that. Let me just show you quickly. First, we see that God uses trials to reveal that your faith is genuine. See that at the beginning? So that the tested genuineness of your faith. God uses trials to reveal that your faith is genuine. How else would you know that your faith is real? If your faith was never tested, never put through trials, would you have any hope that your faith is real and sturdy? Let me put it to you another way. Let's say you're building a house, and a brand new building material comes out, and everyone says, this is the best material you could possibly build with. The only thing is that it's really cheap, which is good. It's half the price of all the materials, but it's never been tested in cold weather. You going to build with it? Not here or in Duluth. Why would you if you live here? Unless you're really desperate, why would you build with that? Because you'd have no confidence that it would work. It's the testing that reveals the truth. People can make claims all they want, but it's the testing of the truth claims that reveal if they're true. God has ordained that through trials, your faith would be proved genuine so that we would have confidence in the saving work of God in our lives. So when the accuser says, especially after you've sinned, see, you're not saved. You look back at the tested genuineness of your faith and you say, God saved me. It's real. I can see it. And those around me, my church family can see it. I can see the tested genuineness of my faith through trials. God saved me. Second reason he gives is Peter says that it's through trials that our faith is purified like gold that goes through fire. You see that they're more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire. It says our trials, they sh- purify our faith like gold that goes through fire. I love how one commentator, name is Tom Schreiner, he says it this way. He says, sufferings function as the crucible for faith. Sufferings function as the crucible for faith. Just like gold is purified by going through fire, the impurities rise to the top and then they're skimmed off. So our faith is purified through suffering. Our faith needs to be purified, made stronger, and more vibrant, and trials are one of God's appointed tools to do that. Faith, by definition, is a looking away from ourselves to God. It's a looking away from ourselves. And don't trials have an amazing power to get us to look away from ourselves? Trials reveal how weak we are and how strong God is. They show how sinful we are and how merciful our God is. They display how foolish we are and how wise God is. We reach the end of ourselves in trials and we must look to him. And the testimony I hear from all believers, and I can say for myself, but I haven't suffered nearly as much as many, but all the believers that I've seen and read about that have gone through suffering, their testimony when they get to the other side is always this, God is bigger and he's better than I thought he was before what trials do. You get to the other side and you say, God is bigger and he's better than I thought he was before. Wasn't Peter's faith made stronger? Don't we see that in his life? From start to finish from a man who is very confident in himself to a man who ended up being very confident in God. And he went through many trials. So our trials, God uses the trials he gives us to Uh, To purify our faith. And last, third, Peter says that our tested genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Now, there's mixed opinion on who is the main recipient of the praise, glory, and honor in this verse, in verse 7. The Bible is clear that all praise, glory, and honor ultimately go to God in the end. But the Bible also teaches that we will receive some measure of reward in eternity and it brings God glory to give us that reward. For instance, when God will say to those who are faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. God is praising the faithful servant. He's saying well done, good and faithful servant. Now ultimately that praise comes back to God because he's the one who kept us faithful, but he is directing praise toward the servant. And Peter says in chapter 5 that we will receive, we will receive an unfading crown of glory. So there's going to be some glory given, even though all of it goes back to God. There will be some reward in eternity, some kind of praise, glory, and honor. But I think this praise, glory, and honor in 1 Peter 1.7 is directed entirely towards God. I think it's entirely towards him. One reason for that is because this whole section is celebrating what God has done. Remember verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all directed towards him. And there's several other reasons. If you want to know, I'd love to talk more with you about that, to believe that this is directed entirely towards God. So the question is, how will the tested genuineness of our faith result in God receiving more praise, more glory, and more honor when Christ returns? How does that work? How does our tested, genuine faith bring more praise, glory, and honor to God when Christ returns? Because that's the argument Peter's making. Here's what I think, and test this against Scripture, test everything, I say, against Scripture to see if it's true. Here's what I think. When Christ is revealed, and we see all those who have endured to the end, everyone will stand in awe that God could preserve the faith of such weak people like us through such impossible trial. I think that's how it's going to give god more praise glory and honor we're going to see how did god preserve your faith through that praise god how did he do that it's all going to bring him glory the tested genuineness of your faith through trials we're going to say what god guarded you through that how did he keep you from being swallowed up from the dangers on the right and on the left how could anyone rescue us from our sin and temptations how could God, guard us from our own sinful hearts, the old man, the flesh that we're doing war with, and the evil one that was out to destroy us. How could God do that? Praise, glory, and honor be to God who preserved us through all that, that we endured. I think that's how it's gonna bring more praise, glory, and honor. That wouldn't be the case if we didn't go through these trials. Think about it this way. All our trials and sufferings will be trophies to God's faithfulness and power all your suffering, all your trials will be trophies to God's faithfulness and power in your life. To think that our trials will one day result in more praise, glory, and honor to God is overwhelming. What price is too high to bring praise, glory, and honor to our God? To the one who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place, to bear the punishment of your sin and mine and save us. Oh, that we would be counted worthy to suffer for him. As the song says, take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take our moments and our days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Brothers and sisters, we have a living hope, sustaining hope, and an enduring hope in Christ. He has won it for us. Live in that hope. Live in that hope. Do everything in that hope. Do the mundane in that hope. Watch TV, especially the news, in that hope. We need people who watch the news and don't go away without hope because we have a God who is risen and we have hope in him. He saved us. Change diapers in that hope. Go to work in that hope. Love your family with that hope. Love the lost with that hope and go through trials with that hope. Live in the hope that Christ has bought for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope you have won for us in Christ. Thank you that you have given us a living hope. We live in light of the hope you have given us now. And we have a sustaining hope. You will sustain us and we have an enduring hope that endures through trials, through temptation, through sufferings of all shape and kind. Thank you, God. To you be all praise and all glory and all honor from this time now and forever. Amen.